And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel to the woman he said i will greatly increase your pains in childbearing with pain you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord made, God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Thank you, uh, Jenny, for praying and also for reading God's word. Can we uh, pray together one more time for a minute, please? Heavenly Father, 
This morning we are going to read an ancient story and study this ancient story. And it is deep waters, Father. Deeper than my mind can go, that's for sure. And we're going to consider what it has to teach us about authority. And you're calling me to preach your word to this group of people about your authority. And I, I feel the weight of that this morning, Father. And so I pray, Lord, grant that my words would be your word. And grant that all of us have ears to receive your word and to submit to your word. For it alone is pure truth. In Jesus we pray, amen. Uh, just a reminder to you that there is an outline on the back of the bulletin uh, for you to follow along that help, may help uh, orient you to what we're discussing this morning. And my phone number is in the bulletin in part so that you can text questions to me. If we have time at the end of the message, we will take up those questions uh, as we uh, wrestle, as I said, with a very deep text. In, in fact, um, this text is so deep, we're going to spend three weeks on this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, beginning this morning. We're going to spend two more weeks after today on it, but we will still have only scratched the surface on all the teachings that are found in, in this uh, amazing, uh, amazing story in the, in the earliest parts of Scripture. Uh, we've been talking about, re recently for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about the power of story to shape our lives. When you when you think about how did I come to believe the things I believe, value the things I value, and live the way I live, you might think that you have rationally discerned all the options out there, the different philosophical systems or different worldviews or different uh, religions, and you have purposely, consciously chosen one to live your life out of, but the reality is that's just probably so far from the truth. What you did was you imbibed stories, stories that were told to you from your, your youth that, that shaped your outlook on life, on what is real and what is valuable and what is worth giving your life to. That came to you via stories. And the best stories, that's what they do. They don't just kind of uh, in, uh, give us an, an alternative reality to experience for a while. What they actually do is, is they interpret reality for us and invite us to believe a certain kind of interpretation of reality and to stake our lives on that interpretation of reality. And so what we've been doing in the last little while as we looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have looked at what we're calling the true story of the world. This is the right interpretation of reality. This is the biblical interpretation of reality, which has revealed to us and shown to us that God alone, that is, the God of Scripture alone, is the God who made the universe and the God who controls everything. He is the great king over this universe who created you and I for the purpose of enjoying His glory and His majesty and His beauty and spreading that glory, majesty, and beauty over the earth as we rule on His behalf. And if we submit to that purpose for our existence, humankind flourishes, the world flourishes, God is glorified, and we're happy. 
But of course, anybody who looks at the world and watches the news just on any given evening knows that we're not flourishing. The world's not flourishing. I mean, the, the, the latest disaster in Indonesia shows that the natural world isn't even flourishing, right? Earthquakes are causing tsunamis that are wiping out thousands and thousands of people at a shot. You watch the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings in the United States and you see that human relationships between men and women and between political parties and between people in a nation are, are not flourishing. They're a complete and utter disaster. What is up with that? Well, enter Genesis chapter 3. For the next three weeks, we're going to explore Genesis chapter 3, and what we're going to see is that the problem with the human race is that we have bought into some false stories, some alternative realities, some damnable, literally, lies perpetuated by the devil himself, Satan, and embraced by human beings, and that has had a devastating effect on the world. And today, we're going to start with the biggie. This is the big one. This is the big lie. This is the, the master lie that humankind bought into very, very early in our existence. And it, in fact, is the source, the ultimate source of all the world's problems. Your personal, individual problems, it's the source of your problems that you have, but it's also the problems, the source of the problems that nations have, it's the source of the problems that, that, he, that different cultures have and different races have. It is at the bottom, at the root of all our problems. And you know I love to make these grandiose claims, but the reason is, is because if I can convince you that's true, that'll stick deep inside of you and you'll remember it. So there's a purpose for all of this fancy talk. Here we go. Let me let me, uh, let me give you three examples of this lie as it's being told in our culture to ha just kind of entice you to try to figure out what it is. First one is this example. How many of you have heard of the movie Billy Elliot? It's a little on the oldish side, but it's still within the last 10 years, so don't bust my chops for being out of touch with reality. Thank you. Okay, so some of us have heard of Billy Elliot. Billy Elliot is a story about an 11-year-old boy growing up in Scotland, uh, in the, I think in the 1980s, might, I might have the time wrong, it is the 1980s, good, uh, and he, his dad wants him to be a boxer, a tough boxer, so he goes to boxing class, but Billy Elliot discovers that he's, a, he's got a natural ability for dance, and he loves dance, he loves ballet, and so the movie is all about this boy, Billy Elliot, working hard to achieve his dream despite all the obstacles and despite all the cultural family pressure to just conform to what his dad wants him to be, which is a tough guy, boxer guy, when he wants to be a refined dancer guy. So he, he follows his dreams despite all this cultural pressure to be a certain way. That's the first example. The second example is also kind of oldish, um, but still under 20 years, so that's not bad. Uh, Back in the year 2000, there was a very popular band by the name of InSync. Anybody remember InSync? Yeah, everybody my age is like, I'm loving these examples. Everybody else is thinking, pathetic, but whatever. So InSync went on a show called Sesame Street. Ever heard of Sesame Street? So they went on the show called Ep Sesame Street, and they sang a song. Listen to the words of the song. I will not try to sing it. I will just give you the words. 
You can go where you want to go, do what you want to do, believe in yourself, just believe in yourself. Some folks try to tell you there are things you shouldn't do, but what seems right to them quite often might be wrong for you. So be sure you try to climb before you get scared you'll fall. You can be what you want to be, learn what you want to learn, you can try what you need to try, no one should question why. And then when they're done the song, okay, there's Big Bird in the background going, yay, that was awesome, kids, wasn't that awesome? And all these little kids are like, yay, it's Justin Timberlake, right? One more example, there's a kid's show called Arthur, heard of the show Arthur, right? If this is your favorite kids show, parents, you are going to feel really bad. Um, the theme song to Arthur says, here's a little message and it comes from the heart, believe in yourself because it's the place to start. And then I said, hey, what a wonderful time of day, right? Now everybody's got it in their head, good. Now, the reason I gave you these three examples is because they're all examples of how our culture is telling a certain story to our children when they're very, very young and continues to tell that same story to us as we grow up. I could have given more examples from adult films and books and stuff like that to prove that adults are being told this story as well. But I don't think you adults in the room need to be convinced that you're being told this story. And what's the story? You, baby. It's you who should be in charge of your life. You are the one who must decide what to do with your life and how to live your life and what is right and what is wrong. You are being told over and over and over again that you are the one who is best able to determine what you should do with your existence. Believe in yourself. Do what you want. Be your own authority. That's the key to the good life, okay? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to see how Genesis shows us that this is a deadly, deadly story to tell. We're going to see from Genesis chapter 3 here, we're going to see the truth about authority. We're going to see a lie we're going to see the fallout of believing the lie, and then we're going to see the rescue. This is what we're going to, to go through together this morning. So let's have a, good, a look together. First of all, what's the truth? We, we, we have it in, the, in your bulletin. You'll just see the first two verses are taken out of Genesis chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you'll see that. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where God has put Adam in, Adam in the garden, and then he says to Adam, he says, listen, it says, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So the scene is, Adam and Eve are created, put in the garden, they have the opportunity to live freely in that garden, they can pretty much go where they want to go, right? Do what they want to do, eat what they want to eat, almost, there's this one tree, we don't know anything about the tree, we don't know what kind of tree it was, everybody wants to say it's an apple tree, the Bible doesn't give us that, that's just history trying to tell you that. It was some kind of tree with some kind of fruit on it, and God, it looks like God just arbitrarily went, mm, 
that tree, don't touch it. Or not don't touch it, don't eat of it. What is up with that? Why, why does God do that? And notice, when God tells him, or tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he does not tell them why. He doesn't say, because it's poison. He just tells them the consequences. You do it, you die. And what, Adam, what God is doing is, is God is teaching Adam and Eve obedience. And true obedience can only come from the root, from the foundation of trust. God is saying to Adam and Eve, you must trust me. If you don't trust me, you'll never truly obey me. Remember when you were a kid and your mom or dad at the supper table would plunk down a, a pan of steaming cauliflower? Okay, I'm revealing my likes and dislikes, I guess. And lift the lid off the pan, and you would just get that, just that smell, that cauliflower smell, right? Like, just, whoa. And then your, your mom or dad would say, now, eat your vegetables. They're good for you. And you would say, why? Why must I eat my vegetables? And if your parents said to you, well, because eating your vegetables is good for your eyesight, right? Eat lots of carrots because it's good for your eyesight. I learned that that's not true. Uh, thank you, Google. Eat your cauliflower because it's good for your uh, bone structure or whatever. Like, eat all these things because it's good for you because all these health benefits will ensue. If you were to listen to your parents say all that and then you go, mm-hmm, 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 yes, okay, I will therefore eat my vegetables... You are doing what your parents say, but you are actually not obeying your parents. What you're doing is, is you are agreeing with your parents. You're listening to their logical arguments and their reason, and you are saying, I consent that they have given a good argument, I agree with their reasoning, and therefore, I will eat my vegetables. But you're not obeying. Not really. You're agreeing with them. You're not trusting them. You know, kids, I hate to tell you this. But there's, keep, keep listening even though you don't want to hear this, okay? When your parents say do something and you ask why and they say, because I said so. See, parents, what we do wrong is, is we say, because I said so. You, you hear the emphasis, right? That's wrong. That's what I do. I'm a bad parent that way, I admit. What you should do is you should say, because I said so. And what you're doing is, is you're emphasizing your character as their parent, which should, Lord willing, if you're parenting remotely half decent, should invoke in your child a sense of awe and a sense of wonder and a sense of respect, but especially a sense of love and trust and devotion. They should be like, okay, this seems nutso to me, but because you said it, I'll do it. See, God had created Adam and Eve to willingly submit to His authority, willingly submit to His authority so that they could flourish, trust His goodness so that they could flourish, so that when they say, this is how you ought to do things, they wouldn't kick against it and go, hmm, well, just because you're God and you're the boss and you've got lightning bolts that you could hit me with, I'll do it. No, 
they would respond in love and devotion and trust and willingly obey. Okay? That's the truth. That's what we were created for. But of course, we chose not to believe the truth. We chose to believe a lie. Adam and Eve did not choose to believe and trust God. They chose to believe an alternative story. You see, when, when Satan comes in Genesis 3 and he says to them, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's proposing an alternative story. He's beginning to propose an alternative story to Adam and Eve. See, God said, if you trust me and obey me and you don't eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will get the tree of life. Satan comes along and he says, no, 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 no. This tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil is the tree of life. Did God really say, look at verse verse. Uh, Verse 1, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And then verse 4, after Eve responds, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, what Satan does is, is he comes along and he says, Adam and Eve, you know, God's holding out on you. He's afraid that you might become like him. You see, if you eat this fruit, you, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. And he begins by sowing the seeds of doubt, right? Did God really say this? Come on. God came to you. He created you. He put you in this garden. He told you to tend and care for it. It's your garden. He gave it to you and he told you to take care of it. It's all yours. And now he comes along and he actually says, here's one tree you don't get to touch now. Are you in charge of the garden or are you not in charge of the garden? Which is it? Does God really love you? And then he contradicts God and he plays the big con he says, you won't die if you eat from that tree. No, 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 you'll be like God. In other words, eating from this tree is not an act of rebellion. It's an act of liberation. That's the con he plays on our first parents. I'll say that again. Eat from this tree, it's not an act of rebellion. It's an act of liberation. God's trying to control you. He's keeping you under, your, under his thumb. You're, you're shackled by his rule. But if you free yourself and rule yourself, oh, then you can go where you want to go. Do what you want to do. Be what you want to be. Believe in yourself. That's the place to start. That's the story. But there's more, okay? There's more. There's, well, no, there's more. But I'm not going to go more. I'm just going to stop there. We'll get to more next week. The point for this morning is to understand this. Satan's lie was that if God rules you, you are a slave in bondage. But if you rule yourself, you are liberated and you are free. And the sad irony is this. When Adam and Eve bought the lie that Rebellion would lead to freedom. That's when, they, that's when they became slaves. They were children. 
They were never slaves. They were children. But when they ate that fruit, then they became slaves. They lost the freedom that comes from being a child, and they became slaves. What? They became slaves to fear. Look at the text. Their dream turns into a nightmare. And now we're on point three. We're talking about the fallout, okay? This is the fallout of the rebellion. Look at the story. What happens? They become afraid. They become afraid of each other. They start sowing fig leaves uh, because they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed of that. And so they had to cover themselves up and they had to hide themselves from one another. And so they were afraid of one another. They were afraid of God. God had been walking with them in the cool of the day. I don't know what that must have been like before the fall. I don't know what it's like when God, who is a spirit, walks in the garden. Are there footfalls? Do you hear him coming? Is it a rushing wind? Beats me. But God, God spent personal, intimate time with them in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. And by Genesis chapter 3, when he comes walking through the garden, they're ready for their evening talk. They go, wah! And they dive for the bushes and they hide from him. They're afraid. They're living in fear. And they're afraid of themselves. You notice when God comes and says, hey, 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 what happened here? What happened here? Immediately, everybody starts going like this. Blame shifting, right? Adam says, well, it's the woman you gave me. And the woman says, it's that serpent over there. And what it shows is, is that Adam and Eve are completely incapable now of being honest about themselves and about who they are. They don't even really know who they are. They are now covering up themselves, both physically and literally, but emotionally and psychologically because they can't just own it. They're afraid. And ever since then, human beings have been living in this same tremendous fear. If you look at verse 22, there's just a remarkable statement. This is a mysterious statement, okay? The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is, this is a strange statement. Adam and Eve have now become somehow like God. Well, how is that possible, knowing good and evil? What does God mean by that? I don't know everything it means, I admit. But I do think it means at least this. You can, you can know things the wrong way. So take, for example, poison ivy. You can know poison ivy in terms of being able to identify it, how to avoid it, and how to treat people who have it. And then you know poison ivy. You can also know poison ivy by getting it. That's a way worse way of knowing poison ivy, obviously. And so Adam and Eve had a knowledge of good and evil that they were never intended to to experience, never intended to have this experiential knowledge of good and evil was never meant to be the way that they would understand it. And so their knowledge of something became greater than they could bear because they weren't made for that. Their natures were not made for that. That's why they're slaves to to fear. Let Let me try to illustrate it this way. You're six years old and you go with your, let's say you go with your mom to the mall. And your mom says, now stay with me, okay? This place is a big place. 
you can easily get lost, stick with me, hold my hand, and you're in the department store, and she's looking at clothes for school, and you're bored out of your mind, and you got a toonie in your pocket, and you're like, I remember the last time we were here. There's an arcade around the corner. I totally want to go there. And so at the first little bit of opportunity, you're gone, and you sneak out, and you go, I'm just going to go play a video game. Mom's looking at sweatshirts and stuff anyway. And so out the door you go and you go, I'm pretty sure it's right around the corner. And you turn the corner and you look and the arcade's not there. And now you're like, ooh, okay. So you look and you try to reorient yourself. Oh, wait, wait a minute. It's around that corner over there. So you go around that corner and you look and sure enough, it's not there. And now you're not just a bit anxious. Now you're kind of worried because you're like, whoa, I thought I knew where I was, but I don't really know where I am. So then you take another tour, uh, trip down one more lane or aisle or hallway or whatever, and you think, I think it's around that corner, and you turn that corner, and it's still not there. And now you're panicking, now you're freaking out. And I know this happens because, as a bad parent, I took my kids camping, and I let them go biking. And I say, go biking and just remember your site number. And of course, they don't, I don't tell them the site number. I just tell them, remember your site number. And I remember my oldest son went off, and he, he couldn't have been much more than eight or nine years old, and he got lost, lost. And he got brought back by very nice people and the look on his face, like of absolute terror. And we said, thank you very much. And he was very strong and tough and stuff. And then as soon as they were out of eyesight, he just broke down, bawling his eyes out, freaking out, because he was terrified of being alone and terrified of being lost. And he couldn't find his way back. Scripture says that that's us. When we take ourselves out from underneath the authority of God, we're like a kid who thinks they know how to get to where they're, where they're going and then soon discovers they don't have the foggiest clue. Because we bought the lie that we are in charge, but we can't handle it and we are reaping consequences, okay? Please, you, you've got to know of personal consequences that you're reaping because you thought you knew better than God. So I won't list any of those for you. I'll let you list your own. But let's think of one cultural example just to help us understand this. We live in a world that says everybody gets to decide what's right for them. Everybody's a, a, an autonomous individual self. And out of that belief comes the idea that a, whim, a woman has the right to choose uh, what to do with her body. And so we have abortion rights in this country. And in fact, we don't even have an abortion law in Canada. Most other developed countries at least have some law. We don't have any law. I think it's us, Vietnam, China, and North Korea. What a great bit of company we're keeping on that. But the point is this, is that, is that a woman has the right to choose, and so you can choose to terminate a pregnancy that's unwanted or, or, or dangerous or for whatever reason you want. And in our world, now understand something, okay? I am not hammering on people who believe in, who are pro-choice, because you got to understand, from that perspective, if you start from the perspective that I am my own authority, it makes perfect sense. It is completely logical that you could make that decision yourself. So we decided that, but here we are now, 30 and 40 years later, after this has been decided in Western cultures, and we have discovered that a lot of sex-selective abortions have been happening around the world, in our own country and other places around the world. And in particularly in traditional cultures where boy children are valued far more than girl children, 
Sex-selective abortions have been happening for a generation now, and we have a generation of boys growing up in places like China, for example, where there are not enough women. That's literally the language that is used to describe it. There's not enough women for men to marry, and it's contributing to violent crime, it's contributing to the rise of gangs and rape and suicide, and a host of crimes can be directly connected to this problem. There's a difference between correlation and causation, and what they're saying is, what what many sociologists are discovering is, is that there is a causative relationship between sex-selective abortions and young men who can't find marriageable women, because there's not enough of them, becoming violent and angry and hurtful and all that kind of stuff. You get what I'm saying? And that's just one example. Another example is, is that... um, In certain places around the world, particularly in Iceland, and close behind it is the country of Denmark right now, children born with Down syndrome are being exterminated. Now now think about this. Think about this. Think about this. People are protesting and putting their money into making sure that we protect polar bears. And I am fully in agreement with that because I love polar bears. They're beautiful, they're glorious, and not just on the Coke commercials, in real life. And they ought to be protected. And yet, we are on the verge, if we continue as we are going as a Western culture, we are on the verge of actually eliminating a, a form of human life simply because they have been deemed, I don't know, undesirable, not useful to the culture. The point is this, when we think that we should be in charge and make decisions of this magnitude, we don't have the capacity to understand and foresee the unintended consequences. That's the point. We're, we're, it's like a five-year-old trying to drive a car. It's a disaster. One more quick analogy. All the planets revolve nicely around the sun and orbit nicely around the sun. And as long as all the planets are doing their thing, revolving around the sun, the solar system gets along pretty well. But imagine if Mars said nuts to this. Why is the sun the boss? I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to write my own planetary orbit. And it starts careening off into other planets and smashing into them, and eventually we all burn up in the explosion of the sun. How's that for? Okay, I don't know if that was a good illustration, but it's still, it's still, (laughs) keep it, chuck it, whatever you want. Um, Look, we were created to submit, but we ran off. We ran off. And the fallout is twofold. It's not just, it's not just that we are messing things up uh, uh, through our, through our, uh, through our, uh, our rebellion, it's that we're now lost. Remember the analogy of the kid who gets lost? We're lost, and we can't find our way back. Look at verse 24. It says, after he drove the man out, this is God, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We were banished as rebels from the presence of God, from the place of God. And, you know, 
That shouldn't shock us because every time you commit sin, it's isolating. Every time a husband hurts his wife, you know, we say, we say laughably, they're in the doghouse. But what do we mean by that? They have been banished. They have been removed from the presence because that's what sin does. But more seriously, okay, there's a barrier between us. Every time we commit sin against one another, there's a barrier. And, and, and we created a barrier when we rebelled against our Creator and we were banished from Him. We created this barrier. And you can't just go back, just like a husband who hurts his wife, can't just go back and act like nothing ever happened. It doesn't work that way. Love covers a multitude of sins, it's true, but if he never acknowledges his sin, if he never deals with his sin, if he never repents of his sin, that wedge between that husband and wife is only going to grow over the, over, the, over the years and over the decades. Men, keep short accounts with your wife. I'm saying this to men because in my experience, men are way worse at saying sorry than women. I don't know why, I, I mean, you women aren't all so awesome, so just chill. But you are, but you, you know, you've got your problems too. But men, I, I've, I've talked to women, this is a bit of a quick aside, I have talked to women who can be married for 40 or 50 years and honestly will say, I've never heard my husband say sorry to me once. That just blows my mind. Like as a man, I know that you've done things. Like we screw up. So say sorry, keep short accounts. You have to do that. But the problem is, in this story, what we see, the sword... The sword has been placed, a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. The sword in the Bible is always a symbol of God's judgment. And what it's saying here is that the only way back into fellowship with God is you've got to go under the sword. But if you and I go under the sword, what happens? We die. We can't, we can't do it. And so we're stuck. Which leads us to, to the last point, rescue. We need to be brought back. We need to be brought back. We can't find our way back. Just like my son when we were camping couldn't find his way back and he needed those kind people to, to guide him back to our campsite. We can't find our way back to God. We need someone to guide us back and bring us back. The problem is, is that whoever's going to bring us back has to go under the sword too. But the story of the gospel is this. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh, when he came into this world and he went to that cross, that's precisely what he did. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. Friends, Jesus went under the sword for us. He was run through. He was run through. On that cross, it says, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was crying out and saying that he is being cut off. He took the punishment for you and for me. And if you read your Gospels, you'll know that at that moment when he cried out and he said, it is finished, because he has gone under the sword for us, the tor the, the, the temple was torn, the, sorry, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And you go, what's that about? Well, it's about this. The temple represented the presence of God and there was a special part of the temple called the holiest place or the holy of holies and that was the, the place of God's presence with his people. But it was guarded by a, a curtain and you couldn't go in there. You can't just go into God's presence any old way you want. And on that curtain was embroidered cherubim. 
They were on that curtain symbolizing that they were guarding the way to the presence of God. And when Jesus died on that cross, that curtain was torn in two. Meaning that you and I can have free access to God because it was finished. Jesus satisfied God's justice on that cross 2,000 years ago. So now what? It's a scary thing, you know. Um, it's a scary thing to give up autonomy and give up control. I understand that. I was, earlier this week, I was at Redeemer University College. David Brooks was there speaking. David Brooks is a man who writes op-ed pieces for the New York Times, writes amazing books. He's on NPR and on TV, he, uh, on PBS as a political pundit. He has reached the pinnacle of the elite society in the United States, okay? That's a very rarefied air. There's only a few people out of the seven and a half billion of us there are that, that reach the halls of power to the degree that David Brooks has reached them. And he did that largely based upon his achievements and his working very, very hard at making all these decisions for himself and guiding his own life and directing his own life. But what he discovered as he went through a crisis in his own life, as he had reached the top, he discovered that purpose in life and meaning in life is not found by having a resume as long as your arm or having a list of accomplishments that gets published on the New York, New York Times uh, website. He found that it actually comes not from living for yourself, but giving up autonomy and living for someone else. It comes through surrender. Through surrendering to your God, your maker and your redeemer. And so he, he's become a Christian. And he spoke very eloquently about that. But that's not an easy thing to do. So what do you do? I'm sure that deep down, each of us here knows that we're not really qualified to run our lives, even though we're trying really, really hard. And some of you maybe are trying super duper hard, and you're not really happy, and you've found that you're not actually particularly holy either. And you've been reaping the consequences of saying, listen, God, I know your word says that this is how I should behave in my relationships. This is what I should do with my romances. This is how I should do my, uh, how I should uh, conduct myself sexually. This is what I'm supposed to do with my finances. This is what I'm supposed to do with my time. I understand that that's what you're calling me to do, but I've, I've made some choices and I've made some decisions myself and I'm giving you these things and I'm, I'm letting you direct my life in these things, but there's some that I'm going to hold back on and you're reaping the consequences of that. All I can tell you is, is you've got to go to the cross you got to see his pierced hands, okay? You've got to see his pierced feet. You've got to see his wounds. You've got to see what he went through for you. When you are holding back and you're like, I want to give this to you, but I don't know if I give this to you maybe, you, maybe I won't be as happy as I really could be. You've got to see that he held nothing back for you. And he can be trusted. That's why Jesus could say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
We're going to pray now. And what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, but then I'm going to pause. I'm going to give you time to let this message sink in, and I'm going to give you time to confess quietly, personally, where you have been believing the lie that this culture has told you, and you're experiencing the fallout of that. I want, I want, this, I want this word not to just be something you say yes and amen to in the service, but it actually does something to you. This is the word of God. We believe that it has power, power beyond our reckoning. So I'm going to give you time to, to be with God and talk with God personally and quietly, and then I'll close again. Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray that you will help us to understand that we were created to live in submission to you, not because, not because you're some sort of bully who wants to boss us around, but because you've made us to trust in you and find our life in you. And when we do trust in you, we flourish. We, we ask you, Father, now, convict our hearts in those places where we have believed the lie that, that believing in yourself, following your own rules, is the way to flourishing and we're bearing bitter fruit and we want to turn from it. So move in us, we pray, right now, this moment, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, convict our hearts as we confess our sin to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you climbed the tree centuries ago and took our sin so that we might be rescued and brought back to our Heavenly Father. Thank you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.